Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. So we're in a series that we are calling Live Out Loud, and it's all about um, being a part of the church and what that looks like. And we've been going through the book of Acts and, and looking at some of the highlights, some of the watershed moments in the life of that early first century church and, and how they dealt with some of these things and how we can learn from that. And, and one of the things we've been talking about through this whole series is to understand that the church is a movement. It's not an institution, it's not a building, it's not programs, it's people. It's a movement of people who are moving forward. And and it comes from Jesus' command, where he said to his disciples, now you're going to take this message and you go not in just Jerusalem, but Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. He says, this is a movement, folks, so get out there and move. And and the book that records their early church is called the book of Acts. Not intentions, not ideas, not thoughts, but action. It was a church in action, and we're looking at this as we are sitting in, uh, moving into the second chapter of life of Northgate, is what should that look like for us? How can, we, how can we act in this way? How can we move forward together as a church? And um, we've been taking a look at each of these things. This morning, we look at one of those watershed moments in the life of the church. This, was, this one was very, very crucial, and, and I'm going to warn you up front, it's a little bit PG-13, okay, so now I've got your attention, um, because what we're going to talk about is an issue that the early church had to, had to deal with, and you might think at first, well, what does that have to do with us, because we, you know, we don't deal with that thing, but it really goes to the heart of something that's a bigger issue, and the bigger issue, the bigger issue is the reason that many people have left the church, the bigger issue is why maybe some of you at some point in your life walked away from church, and it has to do with this idea of who measures up. Who's inside? Who's outside? Who's acceptable? Who's not? And that's an issue that I think is very, very relevant today. And it had to do specifically, the specific issue for them was the issue of circumcision. Because most of the early first century believers, particularly Jerusalem and Judea, those were all people who had grown up in the Jewish faith. They had a rich, rich heritage of of the law. They had a rich teaching all of their life growing up of of this relationship with God. Um, The male members of of the tribe were were circumcised on the eighth day when they were young. And so this whole idea of circumcision was so immensely a part of, of what they were all about. But as the church expanded out, Gentiles became believers, And they didn't grow up with this heritage, and they didn't grow up with any of this teaching, and none of them had been circumcised. So now this becomes an issue in the church. And what happened specifically is in the city of Antioch, that Paul and Barnabas have gone and have shared the message of God's grace, how Christ had come, God himself become a man, and gave himself up on sacrifice for our sin, that Christ had done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And that he had turned around and paid the price for our sin by his death and then rose to a new life to turn around and give us this new life. And he doesn't do it with the list of requirements and he doesn't have a whole lot of hoops he got to jump through that it comes to us as a gift. Nothing that we earned, nothing that we deserved. He gave it freely as a gift and we receive it simply by putting our faith and our trust in him. That it was that simple. And when these Gentiles in the city of Antioch heard that message and and longed for that kind of a relationship, that kind of a life with God, it says that many of them, thousands of them, came and put their faith and trust in Jesus, which was great and exciting, except that after a while, there was a group of people, they were called the Judaizers, and and they came from Jerusalem, Jewish believers, and they came to Antioch because they had heard what was going on there, and they said, well, wait a minute, you know, there's one more thing, (laughs) 
You, you gotta, now you got to get circumcised. See, now, now you got to obey the law because that's what this is all about. So now you got to do that. And, and, of course, all the male members of the church said, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Paul didn't tell us that part. <laughs> I mean, I love Jesus and all, but yeah, this is a bit much. And so it says that actually what happened was Paul and Barnabas got into a sharp dispute with these guys. Because, wait a minute, this, that's not the message that we have been telling people. And, and now we're sending mixed messages. We got, we got to straighten this out. We, we got to find an answer to this. And so what they did was they went back to Jerusalem, back to the elders, back to the apostles, back to the, the, the leadership of the church. And they said, you know, we got to sort this out. Because this is a really, really big issue. And if we don't get this right, the church may not go much further. And so what they did was they called the council of the elders and the leadership of the church there in Jerusalem. And we're going to pick up the story in Acts chapter 15. If you want to follow along. Beginning in verse 4, Paul and Barnabas now get down there. And it says, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. Then some of the believers who had belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this question. Now, after much discussion, and it was a very long meeting, we don't know all the details, but we know the gist of it. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe God who knows the heart. And God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And the whole assembly became silent as they listened now to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God has first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things from long ago. And this is my judgment, therefore, and this sentence... If I could sum up the philosophy of ministry, what we are all about is this one sentence. When we were talking about starting this church 21 years ago, and I was, and I was trying to say, what is it that you want this church to look like? This verse, this one sentence just jumped out at me. And it is foundational to who we are, not only in our past, but where we go in the next in the next chapter of our life together. And it is this. It is my judgment, therefore, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to the Lord. We should not make it difficult for those who are turning to the Lord. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols and sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. We should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. 
And that has been foundational to who we are and what we are all about as a church. And I want to talk a little bit more about that because in their discussion, there's some really important ways that they came up with to not make it difficult. Ways that I think are very, very relevant to us and to how we relate. And so what I want to do this morning is kind of go through and unpack this a little bit. How can we not make it difficult for those who are turning to God? And I got a couple of thoughts. I think one of them is this. That we can engage in conversations instead of assigning categories. See, categories have a tendency to divide people. Categories tend to separate. Conversations do the opposite. Conversations bridge, build bridges. Conversations bring people together. Now, what happened in the early church was... These Pharisees, some of these Pharisees had become followers of Jesus. Now, you might remember, if you've read any of the Gospels, you might remember these guys, the Pharisees, um, because they were the guys who were always giving Jesus trouble. They were constantly on him and constantly calling into question who he was and what he was doing. And, and, and the deal was, these weren't particularly bad guys. In fact, the word Pharisee comes from, from the Hebrew word for, for being pure. They were purists. In essence, they wanted to do as much as they possibly can to make sure that they lived their lives in accordance with the Scripture. That they wanted to make sure that they lived lives of purity and lived lived lives that were right with God. That was at their heart for the most part. That's what they were all about. And and when they heard this message that Jesus had had not only died on the cross for their sins, but had raised to give them a new life, some of them actually grabbed onto that. But it was a little tough to get over their culture and their past and their background. So when they come together, this is what they say. Listen, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. If it was good enough for us, it's good enough for them. And like I say, they weren't necessarily bad guys. They were very sincere. They were wanting to live pure lives. But, but what happened to them is what so often happens to religious people. In our, in our desire and in our sincerity to live rightly before God, we start building walls between us and those who don't live that way. And what starts to happen is we end up with a who's in, who's out mentality. We start setting up this kind of us versus them atmosphere. And believe me, people feel that. You know that. You know when somebody doesn't like you. You know when somebody's holding something against you, they don't even have to tell you. Just intuitively, you feel that. They, you sense that. And that's what happens. And, and, and religious people are really good at categorizing. And that's what happened with them. If you remember, they had all kinds of categories for Jesus. He was a blasphemer. Friend of sinners. In fact, when he, when he cast out demons out of people, they said, well, nobody can do that except by the power of, of, of Satan himself, so he must be the prince of demons. That was a category they gave to him. He was a wine-bibber. I have no idea what a wine-bibber is, but it's an old you know, King James version. But he, he, was a, he was a drunken and a glutton. That, those are the categories that they had for Jesus because he didn't fit their box. And he had categories, they had categories for all the people that went out to him. Samaritan, tax collector, Adulterous. All kinds of categories. And that's what happens. When we start assigning people into categories, it separates. It divides. It builds walls. 
conversations, by contrast, do the exact opposite. Because, you see, when you get to know somebody, when you engage in a conversation and get to know them as a person, all of a sudden, things are not quite so clear-cut as they used to be. It's not quite so black and white as you thought it was. When you hear people's stories and you know their hurts or their struggles or, or their pains or, or, or what they've been through in their life, all of a sudden the categories don't fit. And that's why conversations are so important. And Peter was the one to make that declaration. Peter stood up and he said to them this. He said, brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. He did not discriminate between us and them. Now, let me tell you a little bit of story because if you're not familiar with this, this is what Peter went through. Peter was one of Jesus' original disciples. Peter was at the beginnings of the church. Peter was the first one to preach a sermon in the first church. And, and after a while, as, as Peter had great success and thousands of people were coming to believe in Jesus, um, all of them Jewish, all of them with a Jewish heritage, Jewish background. And one day, one day he was up on a rooftop taking a nap one afternoon, and he had this vision. And the vision was that this, this huge sheet was let down from heaven, and in the sheet were all kinds of different animals, all the animals that were not kosher, all the animals that were unclean. And a voice from heaven said, take, kill, and eat. And Peter said, not me, Lord, not me, Lord. I will never let anything unclean touch my lips. And God said to him, do not call anything unclean that I have made clean. And then he woke up. Oh, that was a weird dream. What was that all about? But he drifted off back to sleep and he had the vision a second time. Same thing. Sheet comes down, filled with these animals that were unclean, unkosher. And he said, take, kill, and eat. He said, not me, Lord. Nothing unclean will ever touch my lips. And the same word came from God. Do not call anything unclean that I have made clean. He woke up. Okay, this is really weird. I've had this dream twice now. I don't know what's going on. And then there's a knock at the door downstairs. And, and there's this emissary. There's this servant of, of, a, of a, a Roman guard, a Roman centurion. And, and, he, and he came to him and said, I was told to come here and to ask you to come and visit my, 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 my Lord, Cornelius. Cornelius was a Gentile. And, and, and all of a sudden, the light bulb goes off for Peter. He goes, oh. That's what that dream was all about. God's telling me, I got to go out to those beyond who I think are clean. And he does. And what happens is that whole household, and not just his household, all of his friends come to faith in Christ. Because Peter is willing to have a conversation instead of put him in a category. Peter learned this lesson. And so he goes on and he says, so, so, God didn't discriminate between us and them. This is, this is something for everybody. Dan Kinnonen has written a book called Unchristian. And, and in it, he talks about this very thing, about how we build categories and we place people in categories and how we, we have biases and, and, and stereotypes that we put people into. And when we lose sight of the person... And he tells a story about having preached at one church and, and preaching about this very thing. And someone came up to him afterwards and said, boy, what you said about stereotypes was so true. He said, I try really, really hard not to judge by people's appearances. Because after all, I know it's only a symptom of what's on inside them. In other words, 
I'm not going to judge by their appearance because I know it's really a symptom of something that's really bad inside of them. So it, the problem's inside of them, it's not, but I'm not going to judge by the. Wait a minute. <laughs> See, that's how subtle this is. We, we have categories for people that we don't even think about it. And, and, and I want to ask you this morning, it's a question I've had to ask myself this whole week. What categories do I place people in? Who are the people that I think of, well, you know, this isn't going to work for them? What categories, those very subtle categories that you have, that you've placed people into, that said, they're never going to come to Christ? See, if we're going to not make it difficult for people who are turning to God, one of the things we've got to do is start having more conversations and a little less categorizing. Something else. We need to learn to make our, not make our standards prerequisites. We need to make sure that, that our standards don't become somebody else's prerequisites. Now, again, this is a difficulty, and this is where the tension lies, because, because there is a morality to our faith. There, there is moral imperatives and, and moral standards and values and, and characters that we want to, that we, characteristics that we want to emulate. There is a morality to our faith. Christ takes us the way that we are, but he doesn't leave us that way. He grows us, he changes, he transforms our lives. And so in that transformation process, there are certain behaviors and activities that we decide we should no longer be doing. And others that we take up and, and our values change and our standards change. The trouble is we got to be careful, very, very careful that our standards do not become prerequisites for somebody else. Because that's what was happening here. They said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom brought by Moses, you cannot be saved. This is a prerequisite. You can't go any further unless you do this one thing. See, we've got our standards. And so did they. By the way, it's particularly the Pharisees. Like I said, they were, they were so consumed with living a right and godly life that they, they just, everything was all about keeping the law. Do you know how many Old Testament laws there are? Just in the Old Testament, there are over 600 laws. You can't hardly move without breaking a law. And, and this is what they had given themselves up to. And now they're turning around saying, well, okay, but that's great that you're a Christ follower. But if you're going to be a Christ follower, you've got to take all this with you. This is our heritage. This is our teaching. This is what we have been given. And, and the problem was Gentiles didn't have that heritage. They came from, from, from a heritage of pantheism. There was a God on every street corner. There was a God for everything that ever happened. They didn't believe in a one true God. They didn't have that. They didn't eat the right kinds of food. They didn't have the right kind of theology. They didn't dress the right kind of way. They didn't look like us. And, 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 and what the Pharisees are saying, listen, you got to look like us before you can really be a part of us. And, and that's the argument. 600 laws. I, I picked up this book this week. I started reading. I'm not quite through with it yet, about halfway through. It's called The, Le- the Year of Living Biblically. Great book. Um, I'll tell you right now, it's written by an agnostic. But he came from a Jewish background, Jewish heritage, and he decided he was going to, partly for the purposes of writing a book, that he was going to, for a full year, live exactly like the Bible said, take everything exactly literally, obey every single command that was in there. 
And, and, and so he did. What he did was he went through the whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, wrote down every commandment, every directive, every instruction that he could possibly find, put them all on a big, long list on his power book, had over 700 of these things. And he said, now I'm going to, to the best of my ability, I am going to live by the Bible. Day one. I have chosen September 1st to start my project. And from the moment I wake up, the Bible consumes my life. I can't do anything without fearing that I am breaking a biblical law. Before I so much as inhale or exhale, I have to run through a long mental checklist of the rules. It begins when I open my closet to get dressed. The Bible forbids men to wear women's clothing, Deuteronomy 22.5. So that comfortable Dickinson College sweatshirt is off limits because it was originally my wife's. Bible says to avoid wearing clothes made of mixed fibers, Leviticus 19.19. So I have to mothball my Poly Cotton Esquire magazine t-shirt. And loafers, am I allowed to wear weather? I go to the living room, click on my power book, and open my biblical rules file. I scroll down to the one about animals. Pigskin and snakeskin, they're questionable, but it looks like regular old cow leather is permissible. And then I stumble. Within a half hour of waking, I check the Amazon.com sales Make a ranking of my last book. How many sins does that compromise? Pride, envy, greed? I can't even count. I don't do much better on my errand to mailboxes, etc. I want to Xerox half dozen copies of the Ten Commandments so I can scotch tape them all over my apartment, figuring it'd be a good memory aid. Now, the Bible says those with good sense are slow to anger, Proverbs 19.11. So, when I get there at the same time as this wiry 40-ish woman, and she practically sprints to the counter to beat me in line, I try not to be annoyed. And then, she tells the mailboxes, etc. employee that to copy something on the one and only functioning Xerox machine. I try to shrug it off. And when she pulls out a stack of pages that looks like the collected works of J.K. Rowling and plunks them on the counter, I say to myself, slow to anger, slow to anger. (laughs) After which she asks some complicated question involving paper stock. I remind myself, remember what happened when the Israelites were waiting for Moses while he was up there on the mountaintop for 40 days? They got impatient, lost faith, and they were struck with a plague. Oh, and by the way, she pays by check and asks for a receipt. And asked to have the receipt initialed. The Proverbs, a collection of wisdom from the Old Testament, says, Smiling makes you happy. Which is actually backed up by psychological studies. So I stand there with a flight attendant-like grin frozen on my face. But inside, I am full of wrath. (laughs) I don't have time for this. I have a 72-page list of other biblical tasks to do. I finally make it up to the counter and give the cashier a dollar. She scoops out my 38 cents of change from the register and holds it out for me to take. Could you um, put the change on the counter, I ask. She glares at me. I'm not supposed to touch women. More on that later. So I am simply trying to avoid unnecessary finger-to-finger contact. I have a cold, I say, and I don't want you to get it. A complete lie. Instead of trying to avoid one sin, I have committed another. And as I go to bed, I wonder. I wonder whether or not I took a step toward enlightenment today. Probably not. I was so busy obsessing over the rules, a lot of which I still, don't, are still seem thoroughly insane, that I don't have time to think. Maybe I'm like the student driver who spends every moment checking the blinkers and speedometer, too nervous to contemplate the scenery. But it's just the first day. That's what happens with rule keeping. That's the kind of lives... Pharisees lived 
all out of good intentions, all out of sincerity. And they're saying, listen, if you're going to live this godly life, then you've got you to get with the program. You've got to do all these things. And that's why this is such a big, big issue. When our standards become somebody else's prerequisites, what happens is it makes it difficult for people who are turning to God. It's like God's grace is so irresponsible, we feel like we have to make it responsible again. Mike Iaconelli says, it's like we have stumbled upon a party that we were not invited to, only to find there are other uninvited guests standing at the door, keeping out the riffraff. (laughs) Peter's argument is this. Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have ever been able to bear? In other words, he's saying, we are living proof that this doesn't work. We have, for centuries, our people have tried to obey all the rules, and it's very, very clear. It's very, very clear. That's not going to do it. Why in the world would we put put something on somebody else that we're not even doing? It doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't make any sense. And besides that, what we have learned through Christ is that is not the basis anyway. He goes on and says, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. See, grace, grace is the great equalizer. And, and it astounds me sometimes How people who have tasted this grace, who have experienced forgiveness of of our faults and our failures and our mistakes and our disobedience and our sin, and and tasted of this new life, this relationship with God, how, how how we can be such recipients of such a beautiful, precious gift of this grace and turn around and be so prideful and arrogant and judgmental. Who are we? Who are we? See, grace is the great equalizer because none of us get in any other way than that. And if you don't believe that, just look around. Every one of us are works in process. Every one of us are in desperate need of grace. And that's what Peter's saying here. For centuries, our people have tried to do this by keeping the law. And it hasn't worked for them, and it hasn't worked for us. And what we've discovered now in Christ is it will never work for anybody. Because it's his grace. It's the gift that he's given to us. And one way we can not make it hard for those who are turning to God is to make sure that our standards do not become prerequisites. And lastly, and I think this might be maybe the most helpful for you, I know it is for me, is to remember that God can purify hearts long before people purify their lives. God can cleanse a heart long before someone can clean up their act. That's what God does. And he always starts with the heart. The change has to start in the heart first. See, here's the key. This is what Peter saw. He said, God who knows the heart. God knows the heart. I don't know your heart. You don't know my heart. I have no idea what your experiences are. I have no idea what you have been through. All I can see is your behavior. I can see how you dress. I can see 
some of your piercings and tattoos or whatever they may be, but I can't see your heart. Nobody can see the heart except God. And God knows your heart better than you know your own heart. And this is what Peter said. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them. Just as he did to us, he did not discriminate between us and them. For he purified their hearts by faith. God always starts with the heart. And Peter is saying, we don't know their hearts. Just like I don't know anybody's heart. But God does. And God has purified their hearts. Maybe their behavior has a long way to catch up. Maybe their understanding of theology has a long way to go. But we are all works in process. God starts with the heart. Because grace, grace gets messy. Because grace is for real people, and real people are messy. (laughs) And if a church If a church is going to operate on grace, we got to be used to the mess. We have got to be able to deal with the mess. Because people's lives are messy. And Peter said, it's grace, folks. And, and yeah, they might have a further way to go than we do. But God knows their heart. And God's purified their heart. And so we, we need to learn to deal with the mess of that. And when a church gets that right, when a church gets that right, it it becomes less and less of a tension and more and more of of a both and. Not an either or, a both and. Now, that doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that we need, don't speak truth into each other's lives. That doesn't mean that we don't need to help each other clean up. It doesn't mean that those things are unimportant. They are very, very important because if I'm going to be a Christ follower, I want my life to reflect him, his goodness, but his grace as well, his truth and his standards, as well as his love and acceptance. And, and that's the deal. Maybe this will help you. Understand, acceptance is not the same thing as approval. We can accept people just the way that they are. That's what Christ did for us. He didn't approve of our behavior, but he accepted us and loved us anyway. And that's grace. And believe me, there have been times as a pastor that I have had to speak truth to some people, and it was very uncomfortable conversations, talking to them about certain behaviors and activities that they were engaged in. And I can do it one of two ways. I can come down on them hard and beat them over the head with it, or I can do it in love and say, you know, (laughs) you got to understand, these choices you're making are leading you down a path, and and I know where that path leads. It's not a good ending, and I love you too much to see you keep moving down that path when, when you've chosen to follow Christ, and when you can do so in love and with mercy and humility. It's all the difference in the world. We need to quit trying to fix people and let God have a shot at it. And I learned a long time ago, he's much better at it than I am. So they decide we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. And you probably read that sentence and you go, huh? 
I mean, where did they come up with that list? What, what is that all about? I mean, they should have at least put like the Ten Commandments, because at least we know, well, we know some of those, you know? I mean, those are familiar. But these four things, what are they all about? I think they really come down to just two categories. And the two categories have to do with how we relate to our culture and how we relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, when it comes to our brothers and sisters of Christ, we need to have sensitivity with each other. Yeah, you Gentile believers, welcome to the family. But, and, and, and this whole thing about eating kosher food, that means nothing to you, and you probably never get it anyway. But, but please, for the sake of your Jewish brothers, because this is important to them, you know, hold back. Just watch it, because it might cause them great difficulty. So, so when it comes to dealing with, your, with the Christian brothers and sisters, be sensitive to where they're at and, and, and how this might affect them in your behavior. And, and when it comes to the world, live a pure godly life. Abstain from sexual immorality in a culture that was so sex-starved and so sex-crazy, which, by the way, is not that different than ours. He says, keep yourselves pure. Keep yourselves pure. Live good, clean lives so that your life looks different than those who aren't of the faith yet. Live rightly in your own culture and live with sensitivity within your church family. And that's it. That's it. These aren't, these aren't requirements. These are just these are instructions for you now. This is how you live this life of grace. Because, folks, grace is all we got. Grace is our message. Grace Grace is our only hope. And grace is what a world is dying for. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.